This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I did not realize until I went off to college how unique and different it was to grow up here in Fort Lauderdale. I was often asked what it was like, but I knew I could never really convey the true atmosphere and the way of living to my classmates who came from the suburbs of real conservative cities throughout the Northeast and the rest of the country. In this episode, we interview Jim Stenson, who is the author of South Florida's Fishing Paradise. This book gives you a great perspective on South Florida and what it was like growing up here. I hope you enjoyed this interview, and I would highly recommend South Florida's Fishing Paradise for anybody that would like to get to know a little bit more about our culture. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. Jim, thanks so much for coming into Lunker Dog Studios and being on the Real Guy Podcast. I love the book, and I really like the way you started off. What really happened is my mom and dad got divorced, and uh, my mom married my stepfather, and him and I really didn't have any kind of relationship at all. So there was this fundamental rule that says you can do what you want to as long as you don't show up at the door with a cop. <laughs> and so I loved to surf, too, which was, which was kind of fun because, you know, even though it wasn't exactly why I'm a bay, it was still surf. Sure. And you were more likely to find a girl walking down the beach with a surfboard tucked under your arm than walking down the pier with, a, with an arm full of spinning rods and bay casting rods. Right. But uh, we were a tribe. I mean, we were 25, 30 kids who were in the same situation. They had uh, you know, a really difficult time at home. Their parents didn't want to participate or they, maybe they didn't like their stepfather or, or whatever the situation is. And, you know, it, was, it really was a tribe. It was very tribalistic in the early days really competitive but uh you know you had this sort of gradient of age people you had the younger kids who were like 12 13 years old and you had some older kids 14 15 16 but you had kids that were actually fishing the pier but really weren't kids anymore they were 20 25 years old right but that was a time when people would actually come out on the pier rolling out shopping carts uh 25 30 rods sleeping bags and stay there two three four nights and fish Hard, well, the hardcore thing was normal back then, huh? Yeah, it was It was insane looking back compared to what it is today. Mm-hmm. And the idea of it, you know, we didn't have any money. We couldn't get on the pier. So eventually we started netting bait. We started catching sand fleas and selling them to the fishermen on the pier. Then we figured out, well, you know, how do we get on the pier and come up with some kind of steady income? So we started catching goggle-eyes and um, Dork Jackson, we started dipping shrimp when the shrimp would come through when they'd blow out of uh, South Florida. And 
it was just we needed a way to figure out how to make money. Sure. So then we started selling pompano. We started selling mackerel. We started selling pompano to a lot of the restaurants that used to lie in A1A. Today, these restaurants are sort of kind of goofy looking. Right. They're not the old-fashioned seafood. There was an Italian restaurant in the corner where right uh, where A1A goes along, or Beach Drive, and everybody in there belonged to the mafia. It was really never, there was no secret to this. What happens is everybody got in trouble in New York and New Jersey. They would send them down to South Florida, and then they would give them a job. <laughs> and so you would go in there, and they're all sitting around the tables and everything, and you'd knock on the door, and the chef would come to the door, and you'd sell it to him, and then they get to know you, and then you start to figure out what the hell's going on. And it's, uh, it was an interesting, an interesting place and an interesting time. It's funny you mentioned that because um, we were just down in Lauderdale by the sea uh, yesterday, and... Um, you know, went to some of the old haunts, the Spadas, and then we went over to see Georgia T&R Tackle. But one of the things that we've always called, um, well, not just Lauderdale-by-the-Sea, but a lot of Fort Lauderdale beaches, it's con-friendly. Yeah. You know, little apartments everywhere. Guys could get out of jail, make a few bucks, and <laughs> hang yeah. out on Fort Lauderdale Beach. I mean, not so much today's world, but back then, that was, you know, kind of normal. People don't believe me, but... When I was a kid, there was literally green space between Pompano Beach and Palm Beach, and Boca Raton was just a little dot on the wall, and there was green space between Dania and Miami. Mm-hmm. You know, a few little small gatherings of buildings and stuff, but there was a lot of green space. And, you know, I don't want to say we didn't see it coming, but we were actually too young to really understand the implications of all the mass, you know, people moving down to South Florida. And before you knew it, there was no more green space. Then they started pushing west, and they were draining and damming and diking everything they could find. And But the upside to that is Seaport 10 Canal and spillways and stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah, Mother Nature could compete with development and water management for the longest time. Yep. And we were, and yeah, we grew up taking, taking advantage of it. Um, so I, I was, I grew up on Los Olds Boulevard in graduate high school in 1986, so I got some of the, the spring break old Fort Lauderdale stuff when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But you, being the decade before that, <laughs> I mean, you were there basically as it started and through the peak of it, correct? Yep. <laughs> now, saying that you couldn't bring a, you could do anything you wanted, just don't bring a cop home. It wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to do back then. No, I know. It was, you know, I, I still remember. Even when I was young, when spring break was a really big deal out here, Fort Lauderdale pushed them away. They didn't want them anymore. They told them to get lost and go back. Then years later, they sort of capitulated and, f- and figured out how much money they were actually losing. And then they started inviting the kids back. But by the time they did this, they were already in Cancun. They were Tex- on Texas. Daytona. Everywhere but Fort Lauderdale. Right. And originally, Fort Lauderdale was like the town to go to on spring break. I mean, you got University of Miami, University of Fort, I mean, FSU, then you got Florida State, I mean, University of Florida. And that's not even including all the smaller schools and stuff. And they didn't have to go so far and didn't have to spend so much money. Right. But there were a lot of a lot of things going on that probably should have never went on. There was a lot of people got hurt, people being thrown off buildings and swimming pools. <laughs> well, it was, it, was to- it was totally, you know, totally nuts back then. But I think you hit it on the head when um, you said that Fort Lauderdale kind of looking back at it realized didn't realize what they had and i don't think they realized all the free marketing that they had absolutely and they squandered all of it you yep. know 
and now you look at the beach today and it's hard to imagine all those kids down there having such a good time i can't tell you how many of them slept on the beach well i don't i wouldn't exactly say they were sleeping they were drunk they would lay on the beach on the beach at night and would be up on the pier and you know you're 13 14 years old you're seeing all these girls and you really don't know what to think and even if you knew what to think you wouldn't know what to do because <laughs> they were so much older than you and um it was an interesting time to be a kid yeah i would um i would get my dad up at like six in the morning and we would go we'd start at Bihiamar and head north and he would drive the pickup truck and me and my two buddies would pick up aluminum beer cans and fill up the truck mm-hmm. and then we'd go sell them for scraps and then whatever we had left we'd go probably blow it at tnr or billboards or something <laughs> but um but yeah totally different time and I like to say that our beach was built on 50-cent drafts. Just about. And it's hard to look at the Ritz-Carlton's and the Four Seasons now, you know, where everything, you get $20 Heineken. <laughs> I know. I mean, I've, I've, already, I've only been down here a week, and I've already dropped 1000 bucks <laughs> On nothing. No, on nothing, just just eating and drinking. Right. And uh, been to had a concert down there last night that brought, brought back a lot of memories. Which concert? I don't know who they were, but they were singing an old, a lot of old songs, a lot of Bachman Turner Overdrive, Casey and the Sunshine Band, and they were pretty good. I mean, obviously, it was sort of interesting because they were all really old, except the lead singer. She was probably young, but it was it was good. There were a lot of people down there dancing, and the crowds in Fort Lauderdale have changed. I mean, very much so, and. Uh, I was sort of shocked when I went, when I first came back. I came back, I guess, about five years ago, and I was standing down at Lauderdale by the sea, and I was doing a bunch of things. I was fishing. Um, I wondered. I had some friends that were retired Marines that had a hard time walking around and stuff, so we were taking them out on the party boats and taking them fishing. But I was surprised at it's like the elbow room. I, I almost essentially grew up in the elbow room once I got old enough. <laughs> And old enough back then was like 16. <laughs> it was it, old enough consisted of if you could get through the door, but since you didn't have any damn doors, you could walk in on each side and sneak around. Well, we, uh, I think uh, my I think I was I was the year that the drinking age changed. It went mm-hmm. from 18 to 21, but I had an older brother that was two years older, so I got his you know ID at like 15. You know what I mean? So you. That was kind of like my first experience of, of walking in and ordering my own beer or whatever. But it wasn't like it wasn't like it was like crazy. It was like lots of kids did it. It was normal. You met other kids, you know, drinking your fifty cent drafts or or whatever, you know, at any one of those places down on the beach. I missed that so much because so many of my best friends, girls, um, all revolved around the beach. And I have a 16-year-old girl that grew up in Fort Lauderdale. And yeah, they go and they like the beach, but it doesn't mean anything to them. Like, it's not like they have to be there every day. Like, if I didn't go down the beach for like three or four days in a row, I feel like I was missing something. I, I lived on it. I mean, the only thing I really did when I went to school was during, I went to play football and baseball and I practiced. And other than that, I, I could care less. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting. When I was a kid, I could, I could really care less about school. I, didn't, I had no intentions of going to college. I just didn't care. And so, you know, I made really bad grades, but just enough to pass. And 
you know, what free time I had, I spent at the pier. Sure. And we spent, you know, not only that pier, Lake Worth, Tanya, you know, uh, Deerfield, Lake Worth Pier. Mm. That was that was phenomenal. Lake Worth Pier was sort of the pier. It was it was the pier that all piers should be measured against at the time. The fishing was just so phenomenal up there. And um, and you said you were into surfing, and uh, growing up here, we were into surfing also. And it seemed like the piers were also the best surfing spots. Mm-hmm. And because of that more kids more girls more fun absolutely <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny too because you know you, you got a break a decent break here in the spring and sometimes late fall when the storm starts coming through when you got some tropical storms offshore sebastian's a good place to surf you know pretty much year year round right. but fort lauderdale from so i see lake worth to down to dania you only really you got a really good surf when there was some kind of you know activity offshore right and then you got a side you know a northeast wind or a southwest wind and uh like i said it wasn't Wyoming bay but, but it was no we serve scraps for sure <laughs> i know uh i was at the lake worth pier yesterday and there was a guy out there on a surfboard and didn't have a clue to what he was doing. It had a pretty decent break up there. And and he's, he's standing, laying on his board in front of this wave, and I'm screaming, paddle, 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 paddle. And he looks at me and goes, what? <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't even get it. He had no idea. He fell off his surfboard like four times. Every time he tried to get up, he did a header off the nose of the board and eventually just walked out of the beach and dropped his surfboard and went and set up in the lounge chair. We did an episode, one of the first episodes we did, um, maybe four years ago or so, and I called it the Kelly Slater effect. And what I did is I, I kind of compared um, how hard Kelly Slater had to work to find the good waves here in Florida mm-hmm. and take advantage of every little wave that he had. But because he did that and because he worked so hard at that, it, lots of Florida surfers, and, but Kelly's, you know, the figurehead of them all, was able to compete on a world level. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'm starting to feel that way with the fishing now. I mean, I don't, I don't focus so much on the fish in the spots, but it's about logistics. It's about staying away from the boat traffic. It's about the cops. It's about the pollution. And like you're like wiggling ways, you know, in order to stay in the best fishing zones that you can. But it's nothing like when we started, when all no. we thought about was tackle and fish and spots, tides, moons, and all that kind of stuff. I don't even think about that crap anymore. The stuff I'm thinking about is totally different. Yeah, you evolve. I mean, some people evolve, some people don't. I mean, I, I've always made this distinction between fishermen that like to catch fish and fishermen that just like to fish. Right. You know, we all like to catch fish, but there's a lot of people that they fi- they fish, and if they don't catch anything, they're really disappointed. More often than not, that person sort of fades away. Right. And the people that like to fish, that are sort of in tune with the waves, the ocean, the migration of the fish, the birds, and the thunderstorms, and all the things that go into what makes fishing kind of neat, they evolve. And, you know, you, you get more selective, the older you get the types of fish you, 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 you fish for, you sort of evolve. It's like I was talking to you earlier, you know, to me, the pinnacle of fly fishing is steelhead and landing salmon and permit. And, but I catch exponentially fewer fish than I ever caught before mm-hmm. because it's not that you're so difficult, but you're fishing a steelhead and an Atlantic salmon. They don't even feed when they come into the rivers. Nobody really understands why they had to fly in the first place. Permit, I just wrote an article for Gray Sporting Journal called 50 Ways to Lose Your Permit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's absolutely true. I mean, I could think, I could just rattle off dozens and dozens of ways I've I've lost permit, 
or how many refusals I've had or types of refusals I've had and how many arguments I've got in with the guide screaming, telling me to set the hook, set the hook, and I'm up there screaming, he doesn't know how to fly, he doesn't know how to fly. He goes, yes, he does, no, he doesn't. And you get into this debate with the guide, but it, it's all out, out of fun. And the permanent swim, follow your fly all the way to the boat, and go tail up, sniff it, and swim away. Right. So then you drop one back over his head, he turns around and comes back and does the same thing two or three times, but he never hits the fly. Right. It's the most frustrating thing I've ever seen in my life. But in the end, it's fun. Right. It's 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 not about how many fish you catch or how big a fish you catch. It's it's just a challenge. It's a, it's it's a combination of a challenge to catch the fish. It's a combination of where you're at. I mean, if I'm on a beautiful river up in British Columbia, say the the Skeenan, the the Buckley or the Maurice, where it's just pristine habitat, and there's bears, there's wolves, there's everything around, and you're, you know, you're 25, 30 miles up a river, with no civilization in sight, with your back to the woods, and you're out there swinging flies, and uh, it's just the coolest thing in the world. Then when you get a steelhead to finally hit, that just, just makes it that much better. Right, right. Well, um, I, I've had the, I had the same thing. It happened with mostly blue marlin. You know, um, I got addicted just to, the, of course, you know, the anticipation of seeing that sunbitch come up. <laughs> but being on the tower, hearing the wind, paying attention to what's floating by, paying attention to water temperature, paying attention to colors. And without the fish, I was mesmerized and I was addicted to all that stuff. You know what I mean? And then, of course, when the marlin came up, I mean, made everything, uh, you know, made everything worthwhile. But I was perfectly fine. And some of the other captains um, were miserable because they couldn't just sit back and take it all in. They were getting paid to be out there, and it was hard for them. And, I, you know, it, I would be like, guys, you're missing the boat. Like, the marlin, that's extra. Is it everything that goes along with it? You know, you, you take the time to enjoy it. And, I don't know, very few captains. I guess the 80-20 rule, right? Yeah. 20%, 80% don't get it, 20% get it. I've never used a 90-10%. 90-10, yeah, but, but, but Some- yeah. Sometimes even worse. Same same theory. So, so growing up here in Fort Lauderdale, what was your first recollection of the uh, mullet run? This is actually in the first chapter. There's a, there's stories in there. The mullet run was. I didn't. I didn't first of all, we didn't have much transportation. <laughs> I was young. It was either a bicycle, but we could get down to you know we could go down the beach in either directions but the first time i saw a mullet run it, it, the mullet run had to be a mile a mile and a half long and probably a half mile wide and so we were always trying to you know we'd take trash cans down to the beach with cast nets and we'd net the mullet in the surf take him back out and hook him in the ass and pitch him back out and hope for a tarpon or a snook and more often than not a giant jack hit it or something else came through a cuda blew him up but i was always really sort of interested in what was underneath there and so a few years, at, few years later, we, we actually put on fins and masks and, and uh, went out there and tried to, tried to see what was underneath all the mullet. And the problem was, every time we got in the water, the mullet would move off, the game fish would move off, and so you'd get deeper and deeper and deeper, and you really didn't see much, which was sort of a, but you saw a lot of sharks, which was an interesting thing. And the first time I saw a shark, I kept thinking, my God, how do I get out of the water fast enough not to get my ass chewed off? Right. But it goes back to one of these Jacques Cousteau things, you know. It's when there's a lot of bait around and a lot of mullet around, a lot of things to feed on, they don't necessarily, 
you know, we're not necessarily aggressive. At least that's what Jacques Cousteau said. <laughs> but, <laughs> and you had nobody else to bank on but him. Back then. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and he wouldn't lie to you, right? You just, you just make this assumption. A guy <laughs> of that quality would never lie to you. But, uh, you know, there were a lot of big hammers, just huge hammers, seven, eight, nine hundred pound hammers. And they weren't there for the mullet, they were there for the tarpon. Right. And until, until you actually see a big hammer turn and swallow three quarters of a whole tarpon, it just, it just, it's, it's an adrenaline rush, but it's not something I'd like to see a lot in the water, okay? It impresses me off a pier to see a big hammer take, take a bait off the top, but actually be in the water and watch that hammerhead take a bait is like, a small tarpon or medium-sized tarpon is like, holy shit, <laughs> how do I get out of the water fast enough? As I was talking to Steve Gantner, he's. I says, yeah. He says Jim's coming over tomorrow. He says, oh, he just left my house, and he said, uh, he says, man, the guy loves fishing. He says, but he loves writing. <laughs> he says, I don't, he says, I'm not sure. I've I've talked to somebody in 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 a long, long time that loved writing as much as Jim Stenson. I was like, really? And um, anyway, how how did your passion for fishing translate to writing? Well, I was. I was, uh, like I said, I started really coming to the pier when I was maybe late 12, early 13. Uh, and I was going down, I was actually enrolled in the old Fort Lauderdale High School. They had a really weird system down there. They went away from having to go from math to English to science to yada yada to each class where they just separated the buildings. And you could actually spend the whole day in math if you want to and with all your friends and do your homework for all the other classes. Or you could choose to go back and forth, whatever you want to. But the library at the old Fort Lauderdale High School had a contest that says, what Christmas meant to me. And so everybody had to, didn't, didn't have to. If you wanted to participate, you had to write a, like a 3,500-word essay on what Christmas meant to me. And so just for shits and giggles, I started writing. And uh, then there was another contest that eventually started what Hanukkah meant to me. Okay, so there was this Jewish girl I knew that had entered her essay. And so we were in the auditorium. You know, I had no idea in the world what was going on. And the librarians get up there, and they've said they've looked at all the essays and stuff. And the winner for what Christmas thinks means to me is Jim Stenson. And I go, I'm going, okay, I can, I can deal with that. She goes, Jim, can you come up here and read your essay? And I'm going, no. <laughs> had to get up in front of everybody. Oh, God. I read that essay so fast that everybody <laughs> just sort of looked at me and goes, what the hell is he saying? <laughs> and uh, then the girl, the Jewish girl, gets up there, and she reads it nice and quiet and really great. And I am just sweating like a pig, and I'm standing there. So they gave me a big edition, custom edition, of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea signed by the librarians. So that was the first time I actually even even thought about writing. Or even knew you had a bit in you, huh? Yeah, but the, you know, later on I talked to the librarian, I go, why did you pick my essay? She goes, well, your essay wasn't very good, but we understood that since it wasn't very good, you probably wrote it, <laughs> the rest of the essays. <laughs> the, the parents probably wrote the essay. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. That, 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 I, that seemed to be like the attitude in Fort Lauderdale in the old days, mm -hmm. is they would try, people, you know, seriously, would try to open doors for other people. Oh, absolutely. Totally different than what we see here today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions 
that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I spent, uh, when I left Fort Lauderdale, I left when I was 17, um, I had a Bronco and I headed north and I was going to spend six, seven years steelhead fishing in Oregon because I had an uncle out there that owned a car dealership. I actually owned five car dealerships in Beaverton and Portland. And I would go down and I'd get a demo and he would let me, and I'd just spent my time, you know, swinging for steelhead. Mm-hmm. And a couple of guys that worked in the dealership were really good steelhead fishermen, so we all hooked up and it was sort of a blast. But um, then things sort of fell apart. The fisheries up there started really, get, really getting bad. And so Halliburton, at the time, they were looking for divers, hard-hat divers, and they were paying a fortune. But in order to do that, you had to be certified. So one thing sort of led to another, and uh, we found the best hard-hat diving school on the planet, and it was in Oakland, California. But they were like six years, they were packed up for the next six years because all these companies, these, these oil companies were paying so much money. And you had, to, you had to be in a pair. You couldn't do it by yourself. So you had to have one guy up top running the pumps and stuff and one guy down at the bottom. That way the guy at the, on the bottom had faith in the guy upstairs and, and that wasn't some just Tom, Dick, and Harry up there fooling around with the air. So uh, my the friend of mine, actually a guy that went out there with me, he comes, he, he leaves the house one morning and he's gone for, I don't know, two or three hours. Then he comes back and opens the door and there's this Navy recruiter with him. And he's got this big old-fashioned reel-to-reel projector and stuff. And so he comes in there and he's starting to show all these pictures of, of a Navy diving program. And, and uh, he's, this is sort of a long, drawn-out thing, but it's, it, it's not really important. The point is, I ended up in the Navy. <laughs> okay. And so... Um, I spent almost eight, eight and a half years in the Navy. And so then when I got out of the Navy, I uh, wanted to go back to school, believe it or not. I knew when I got out of high school, I didn't want to go to college. That's the last thing I wanted to do. It was just too much work. And I just wanted to have more fun. And so when I joined the Navy, I spent eight years that I got out and I came home and I just sort of screwed around and fished. I came back to Fort Lauderdale, fished. And that was during sort of the time that uh, Steve Kantner and George and I we're fishing the bridges up in Palm Beach. George Copeland. Yeah, George Copeland. And, uh, you know, it was great. <laughs> we we worked so hard at catching the bait, and we'd come back and fish the bridges, and we'd take the, at that time, you could actually park up on top of the bridge, and you had live wells in the back of the truck, so we had them filled with mahara and mullet, and George had all the pilings and stuff down pat, and you which ones to go to, which ones to pitch your bait out, what tide. It was like, you know, having, you know, a Superman there to instruct you, do this, do that, do that, and you're, you're going to catch a fish. Right. And lo and behold, we did. So we'd catch five, six, seven, eight snook between the three of us. We'd bring them back down to TNR, put them on ice, and put them in the cooler. Then we'd head down to Hollover Inlet and try to catch the incoming tide in the morning. And then we would come back and people would, you know, try to run the shop. Jimmy would stay there. Steve would stay there. Then everybody took time sleeping. Get up at night again, go have go have breakfast at Denny's. Then lose the crowd of people who were chasing us. Then we'd go back and fish it again. March and April were phenomenal. Yeah. And uh, it was just, it was incredible. I mean, it was, it was almost too easy because it was like somebody saying, okay, come over here, swing, pitch your mullet out and swim it back. 
And, you know, that's, that's the first time I've, somebody ever told me that if you hooked a mullet in the butt, it'd go one way. If you hooked him in the nose, he'd go another way. Front of the dorsal, he'd go one way. And, he'd, and then back of the dorsal to get him to go the other way. But when you're pitching these mullet out and the tide's coming under the bridge, you want the mullet to swim it up, but you want him to swim deep, so you got to hook him in the hook. And George is telling me all this stuff, and my brain's about ready to explode. <laughs> and I'm going to throw the damn bait in the water. But uh, if, if you didn't get a snook, you, you hooked up on a tarpon or a big jack. It was crazy and now you go up there and the bridge is so high you get a nosebleed looking over the bridge the new one yeah the new bridges and then you know they don't hold the bait like they used to and that kind of thing so let me slow down a little bit um were, were you into fly fishing before you went out to oregon yeah okay so when, uh, when did you when it introduced the how did you get introduced to the fly part of it well i probably had god i don't know where i got all the gear i got but i had a lot of gear i could come out to the pier and roll out 25 30 rods and I was I stayed to it three days, and I had I, lock, I rented a locker at the pier, and I had two surfboards in one locker, but I had everything else in the other locker, and uh, I just didn't want to go home. I mean, there was lots of things going and emotionally happening, but uh, I, I walked out on the pier one day, and there's <laughs> I, I haven't told Steve yet, but it, it's the character in the book, but I didn't use his name. I changed the name. I didn't know how he would, he would <laughs> sort of react. But I walked in, and, and Steve Kantner and Ron Thomas was maybe 15 feet from the lockers. And the tide was coming, running north. And south on the side of the pier, there was all these troughs. The tide was coming in. There was just tons and tons of bait and uh, a few jacks coming in. But the snook were just stacked there, like boom, 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 boom. It, it, it looked, had to be 25, 30, 35, 40 snook there, all the berry sizes, some big fish. And these two have got a five-gallon bucket there with water in it. They've got their fly line stacked in the bucket so it doesn't dry out. And they're sitting there three feet off, you know, essentially off top, but three feet away from the shore, right. pitching flies to all these snook. And I was just mesmerized. I just, I'm going, holy cow. I stood there and stood there. For, it had to be hours waiting for these guys to hook up a fish. And what would happen is these snook would follow the fly and sniff right behind it, but the water was so clear and it was so shallow. And you had this big pier above them. I think that sort of pushed them away. And occasionally they caught them. And then somebody hit somebody with a fly upside the head and the pier went nuts. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of put an end to all of that. But Steve, little pier drama. <laughs> Steve Kantner was, was, first time I met him, he comes out on the pier. He's working for an insurance company. Has a jacket, a tie, and a white shirt on. Takes the jacket off, hangs it on one of the nails at the, in the, the middle of the, the cover that goes over the middle of the pier and he starts fly fishing <laughs> and i'm going god I, you know, is, he, is he ever going to catch a fish but he did he did hook and catch quite a few fish before they banned fly fishing on the pier and all the tourists it's insane i mean it's like when i fly fish on the beaches of sanibel for snook tourists walk right behind you they don't give a care less what's happening they're oblivious to it right. and you just have to keep looking back and looking back and make sure you don't hook anybody so there was a guy who worked for the Miami Herald. He was a writer, and his name was Steve Winston. And uh, he was a really good fly fisherman, just had a really good reputation. And I can't remember where I met him. I, I might have met him on Dania. But anyway, he, we were out there talking, and he started a new fly club. And so everybody would go over to his house like the third Thursday of every month and sit in there and tie flies. And hell, I didn't know how to tie a fly. I mean, I, I, I'd never tied a fly in my life. So I get there, and he's, he's, he's trying to show me how to do all of this. And all of a sudden, he picks up a box, and he brings it in there, sits it down, and there's a vice, there's a bunch of bobbins, there's tons of thread and tons of feathers and all sorts of other stuff. And then he gives me a fly rod that was a piece of junk, <laughs> just a 
piece of junk. And it had an old fluger on it. The spool kept popping out of the fluger. And by that time, we were already fishing in the Everglades. Sometimes in the wintertime, we'd go out and actually camp in the Everglades. And so I had this fly rod, had a fly reel, didn't have any line, didn't have any back, didn't have anything, didn't know how to use it. And literally, it was to, to click on the fluger reel, it would just fall out on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and so I finally got somebody, I don't remember who it was, that actually gave me a fly line and, and um, gave me some tippet material and, and the line to this day it was it was it wasn't a it wasn't a weight forward line or a shooting head or anything it was just a fly line <laughs> and i'm not even sure which end was first and so then i tied on a, a leader on it but i tried to cast and every time i cast the damn reel would fall apart fall on the ground the line would roll and i mean sometimes it land in the water so after four or five days of that i just i went back to camp i just broke it over my knees took the reel the rod and i threw it in the fire <laughs> and that was my first experience with a fly rod but uh that night i tied two of the ugliest damn flies man's ever seen <laughs> but, but it was you know they were so bad so that was my foray into fly fishing and so ted williams used to come to town during the boat show and do fly fishing uh, presentations i was over at the uh What's it? Not Miramar. What's the hotel over on the beach? Uh, Bahiamar. Bahiamar, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I went over there, and there were so many people there, but you couldn't couldn't see Ted Williams. And Ted Williams is my father's hero. I mean, he thought he was the greatest baseball player in the world. And he goes on and on and on and on about my Ted Williams. So I get there, and I'm thinking, well, I need to get Ted Williams to teach me how to throw a flyer. And so I thought I could just walk up to him <laughs> and ask him this question. But there were like 300 people around there watching him cast. And so I never did get close enough. And so about six months later, these small fly shops started popping up everywhere, these little boutique fly shops. And most of them were fairly expensive. But uh, I guess it was maybe a month after that I went into a Sears store. And they used to sell Ted Williams fly rods and reels and all this paraphernalia. And so I didn't have enough money to buy the fly rod and the reel, so I went back to the pier and I sold, I think it was a nine-foot Harnell with a Jigmaster on it to one of the guys for like 40 bucks. Then I took the 40 bucks and went back down to Sears and I bought him a seven-foot-nine uh, Ted Williams fly rod and a Ted Williams, I don't forget what they called the reel, but it was a saltwater version. And so that's all I had. And I mean, I, I still didn't have any line. I didn't have any backing. I didn't have any leader material. I didn't have any flies except the two damn ugly ones I tied. And so I had I had friends that were actually fly fishing, and their father was a guide. And so eventually they met me at the pier, and they brought me out a couple of fly lines, a couple of leaders, and they brought me a box of about 25 or 30 saltwater flies and about a half dozen freshwater poppers. And so every day after school for about six months, that's all we did. We'd go to the football field and we'd cast and cast and cast and cast. Then they taught me how to double haul, which could have been the greatest thing anybody ever taught me in my life. And so eventually, I'd still never even thought of fly to fish. So here I've been doing this for six months on the football field. And so Brandon's father, the guy, his name is Ralph, we were going to fish the hot water canal. And he kept talking about, you know, tarping on the fly and all this other stuff. And so we... We were at the pier fishing, but we went to Denny's and had breakfast. Then we met his father at 17th Street Causeway. And uh, the boat was in the water, and his truck was already parked, and I got out and I took my fly rod, had a couple spinning rods, had a bait casting rod, and I got ready to get in the boat, and he takes my fly rod. He said, holds it up to the light, and he says, I'll just put it back in your truck. Don't worry about it. We got fly rods here. So I tried, you know, I was emotionally sort of just 
what? <laughs> I, can't, I can't use my rod. I know. So we get up in the hot water canal, and of course, nobody was, I mean, it was too small to use a fly rod. There were too many boats in there. It was Friday night. And so we kept drifting and, and bouncing and glowing the dark couts in the bottom. And I caught a 28-pound snook that night in the hot water canal. And then we left there, and we went over to Pier 66, and we were going to fish the lights when the tides changed. We were going to fly fish because it was, it, well, I wouldn't say it was enough room, but if you positioned the boat right and got out of everybody's way, you could actually throw flies under the docks over there under the lights. Um, but you always had the, the people, the security guards and stuff, moaning and screaming at you. <laughs> the best way to do it would actually be stand up on the docks. But just if it's hard to land anything in, the, in there anyway. If it's big enough, it's just going to take you into the piling to rip you off. So we we sit there for about three hours just pounding the docks to death. And I didn't want to cast. I didn't want to get up on the bow. And Ron and Brandon both went over there and just beat the water to a froth. And uh, Ralph says, get up, Jim. And I get up there and I'm like, God, this is going to be so embarrassing. <laughs> And I started stripping line out on the deck, and instead, instead, of, instead of stacking it in the right direction, I had all this line on each of them. But I tried to cast, and my hand slipped off the fly line. The whole wad of line went out. So we're, these two are grabbing my line and bringing it back in and trying to stack it on the deck. <laughs> and I was just going, oh, please, God, just get me off the boat. And so, you know, I started casting and casting, and it still didn't get any better. About every third or fourth cast, I'd, the line would slip out of my hand, and the fly would fall down. And... You know, it was it was really sort of embarrassing, and uh, so then the tide started slowing down. But we were pulling out of Pier 66, and a huge school of jacks just blew up on bait everywhere. And so he told me to get up in the bow and start casting, and I started casting and casting. Still wasn't couldn't cast very well. I don't know why. On the grass, it was easy. <laughs> but now, you know, with, with the fly line on the water and the tension and everything, this is all a little and bit more. Any amount of pressure you're probably putting on yourself. <laughs> so. Anyway, uh, he said, just relax, calm down, and do everything we told you to do. So I finally made a good cast, well, 15 or 20 feet, but it was a good cast nonetheless. <laughs> and a big jack, about 16, 17 pounds, comes up and sucks my fly down and starts heading south to Miami. <laughs> I didn't know how to stop him. The honest truth, this is the first fish I'd ever hooked on a, on a fly. Right. So I didn't really know what the heck I was doing. So by the time the line came tight, the line was flying off the reel, and you know, I, I didn't know how to put any pressure on him, really. I, I, didn't, I couldn't even have been Brandon screaming, give him some down and dirty to the right. And Ralph's up there going, let me start the boat. And so this went on for like 30, 35 minutes before we even got on top of the fish. And then it got to the side of the boat, and he, essentially Ralph tried to grab him by the tail, and the fish was beating himself to death on the gunnels. And uh, he got the fish in, and I, I grabbed him, got a few photos, and I released him. And that didn't didn't sit well with Ralph. Ralph wanted him for something else. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so we get back, and but going back to the hot water canal, <clears throat> when I hooked that snook, what had happened, there was three of us fishing. There was Ralph and Brandon on the front. <coughs> Excuse me. And I was in the back waiting for my turn. So when I moved up, um, I started, instead of casting the, the foam in the dark towel over to the seawall and the mangroves, I just started flipping it back and letting line out, bouncing it off the bottom, bouncing it off the bottom, bouncing it off the bottom. It was the same, same scenario, just a little bit deeper water. Mm -hmm. And that's when I hooked the snook. But when I got it in, what I did before, before I made the cast, I cast and I had to raise the line over Brandon's head and I knocked his baseball hat into the water. <laughs> and he started screaming at me for about 15, 20 minutes. And so then 
the boat, the, the, the snook, fi I finally got the snook rolling close to the boat, and he starts screaming, that's a met, that's a met fish, that's a met fish, and I'm going, what the hell is a met fish? It's, it's a damn snook. <laughs> <laughs> and so Ben, you know, he, both of them just kept screaming at me, like, are you really that stupid? You don't know what a met I'm going, okay, okay, well, what the hell's a met fish? So we finally got off the water, and we went and had breakfast at uh, Los Olas. That's Floridian, and they talked to me for about 25 or 30 minutes trying to tell me what a met fish is. So we essentially went down and the tackle shop opened up uh, where Dozier and his wife used to work, where Dozier's wife used to wrap rods. And, you know, they take it in there, and first thing Brandon does is he gets out of the boat and runs into the tackle shop. And he goes in there and tells them the whole story. But that should have been his fish, shouldn't have been my fish. <laughs> I cast over his head, he knocked his hat off, yada, yada, yada. And so one thing led to another, and it was it was a, it was just a, I hate to use the word it was a clusterfuck. <laughs> we, <laughs> we put the we put the we put the cooler up on the boat, and the two kids ran inside and popped the you know the the, the drain plug off, and just sit there and watch all the water run. And so eventually we had to go inside, and I was so embarrassed because when I went in there. I knew these guys ran in there and told them the whole damn story, starting with my bad cast. I mean, it just, I, I know they were in there. And so we tried to get the damn cooler for the day, door, and the guy that worked there was about three times the size of the door, and he was standing in the middle, just holding the door open. And Ben Ralph just got really pissed and kicked the cooler in and hit him, hit him in the knee, and he started screaming, and one thing led to another. <laughs> it just, he went downhill from there. And finally, you know, we popped the cooler, and a lot of guys in the, in the shop looked at it and said, yeah, ho-hum, that's a nice fish, yeah. So then they put it in that, they had an old-fashioned old fashioned scale, but, you know, you put bananas in the stuff at produce companies, and they put it in the scale, and the thing went bam, 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 and it came up to a little over 28 pounds. And uh, it just sort of started it all. And I was hooked. I mean, I just, it was, once I hooked that jack, I mean, that was it. That was that was phenomenal. I think, I think, uh I think jacks have done that <laughs> forever. Yeah. And it's crazy how many... I, I mean, I'll give you a good example. Just three nights ago, I had these fly freshmen down from Connecticut. And the jacks are blowing up in the shadow line. And I almost went right by them. And then I said to the guys, I said, you guys ever catch jack on fly before? And they said no. So I immediately went over there, and they both got a couple... And I just sat back and watched and thought to myself, man, how many people discount these fish? And these fish have started so many people from their, let's just call it from their seed to now their oak trees, but yep. it started with a, a jack on fly. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be a big one either. No, just a jack. You know what's really funny is I love fishing for cooters with live bait. I don't like throwing rubber tubes or anything like that because it's, it's so much work. <laughs> but to get a goggle eye and hook him in the ass and pitch him off into the pill. And it's like, especially on Deerfield when I was a kid, there were so many huge cooters at Deerfield Pier. And uh, I'd get a blast just catching them. And uh, when you're a kid, I mean, it's essentially, it's, it's not really important what you're catching. It's just fishing. You right. know, you're getting better and better and better and the more time in water, you know, the better you get. Right. But we learned a lot from all the older kids. I mean, that's just... They sort of drove the boat. Whatever did we did, whatever they did, we imitated them. Right. And well, let's, let's get back to writing a little bit. The okay. Well, because I, I, you know, learning about you, I realized that not only did you write books, but you did a lot of you know articles and things like that. And I think some of the writers might have spoiled it for people that wrote magazine articles, mm -hmm. because you know it was 
it was always about the glorification of the big three, tarpon, bonefish, permit, right? And when anglers would have the opportunity to catch a nice cuda or a jack or uh, a pompano or, I mean, just moonfish, anything like that, um, they felt like they weren't getting it done. They weren't living the dream. And because of that, I think a lot of people stepped on their own toes and never experienced it because they didn't realize that it was there. So when it comes to writing, the difference between writing articles in magazines as opposed to writing a full book, how were you able to... Well, about 15 years ago, uh, I'd already had Sweetwater's Adventure was up and running. And so I decided to sort of experiment with digital magazines. And what I was really, it really wasn't, I wasn't trying to write a magazine. I wasn't trying to create a magazine. I was trying to create a piece of software that looked like a magazine, but actually anybody could put information to and upload or download on their, on their server. And so you could actually go into magazine and click here and it clicks and it flips, all, like all the digital magazines today. Right. But I really didn't, I wasn't really looking to create a fly fishing magazine. What happened was I was trying to create a sort of a, What's, what's for lack of a better word, an example where I could send these examples out to other companies where I could either sell the software or I could build a magazine for them. Mm -hmm. So the uh, first issue of TCS went out and what I did is I worked with the same writers and photographers and worked at Grace Sporting Journal, Garden and Gun, they were all working for me. Same people, I was paying them 1500 to $2,000 an article, but I allowed them to put as many pictures as they wanted to in there and, and have the context as long as they wanted to, How, it didn't matter, 15, 20 pages. And I took all the advertisement out of the stories and put them at the beginning of the story and the end of the story. So you didn't have to keep trying to find which page the rest of the story's on, that always drove me nuts. And since it was a digital magazine, originally then it became a printed magazine but uh, people just liked it because the stories were really good because they were written by really good people and great photographers and like I said essentially they were the same people doing Grace and uh, as a matter of fact Grace actually I know the people that own Grace and they were helping me a lot out in the beginning of the days so then I ended up they talked me into opening up one for wing shooting it was a contemporary wing shooter same format same thing different stories about wing shooting and, and uh, so eventually, I put it up online, and I had a choice. I could either charge or I didn't have to charge. But I was still in the mode of trying to promote these as a, to another company, you know, so I could either build their magazines or I could, whatever the situation had, pertained to. But somehow, some way in there, I really started liking it. I liked the editing. I liked being the managing editor. I liked, I liked writing my own columns. Then my wife started writing a column in there called The Sportsman's Widow which is really sort of interesting because my column from the editor, I would get two or three, four emails after the magazine came out and tell me how much they like it and stuff. And my wife would write a story always talking about me, talking about all the things that I, I do and things that I shouldn't have done. And anyway, to other women. And she was getting 1,500, 2,000 emails. <laughs> An issue would come out and they were all women saying, oh. yeah, my husband's like that. You know, yada, 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 yada. Oh, I never would have thought of that angle. Uh, neither would I. And she fought me tooth and nail in the beginning. Now we've got about 40 of these articles sitting on my server. And I think I'm working on my third book and, I, and I've actually started the fourth book. But I think after these two books are finished, I'm going to create a book where it's having an introduction, obviously, and then it's going to have her story 
then it's, I'm going to have a rebuttal, then her story going to rebuttal, and have a story in a rebuttal. That's the only way I'll do it. I do not want the world to, to hear her stories and think I'm that stupid. <laughs> you got to hear both sides of the story. <laughs> you got to have both, both sides. And my wife hates fishing. That's my funny. wife's a vegan. I mean, I, mean I, I, I eat so much tofu, I should have breast. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. And, you know, she walks into the bedroom with all, all the gear and stuff. And I, what I did is I went to the, uh, a restaurant supply house, and, you know, these metal racks that they stack all the boxes and stuff on. I have them in all my bedrooms, and that's I have plastic containers, and, and I keep all my stuff because I have so many cats and dogs. I, I, I try to keep them away from it. And she just looks at it, and she goes, what, what's going to happen when you're gone? <laughs> I'm going, well, <laughs> I'll leave you a list of friends to <laughs> call. <you> <laughs> And, uh, but I started, it just sort of evolved. And one thing led to another. And then I started writing some magazine articles. And very few of my magazine articles about fish. Uh, I've, I've written two magazine articles about pancakes. I've written about commercial uh, seafood. I've written about, you know, the, this, this fish farming and stuff like that. I rarely write articles about fish because it's just, it's, it's sort of a weird feeling because I don't like to be a person out there telling everybody what to do and how to do it, when to do it. Right. I will suggest things. I will help people. Like I, I edit a lot of people. Steve sends me a lot of his stuff to, to look over. And it, nobody can edit their own books. And the problem is it takes a long to write a good book where you've read it so many times you no longer see the mistakes. So you need somebody else to read it. But then like Stackpole or Simon & Schuster, they have sort of a, I, I look at it as like a pyramid. And on the bottom section, you got all these minions running around trying to find books that might sell in a specific category. Then the second floor is where the acquisition editors live. And they're the ones that actually go out and, you know, sort of work out a deal with the author or to, you know, at least tell the author, you know, which direction to go to or no, no, it just doesn't fit our platform. And it sort of goes from there. Then you've got the editors on the third floor, and then you have the fourth floor you can just skip that because there's a lot of weird people on that floor but the top floor are the bean counters they don't give a rat's ass what your book is about they don't care how many pages what's what all they want to know is how much money are we going to make right. and if you can't get past these bean counters i don't care who you are you're not going to get published then you're in an issue where this is your first book you're trying to publish. Everybody kept telling me, no, no, you're never going to be able to get it published. I mean, publishing, and it was right in the middle of COVID. Everybody's working out of their house. Nobody's going to buy it, yada, yada, yada. And so I wrote two books. And so I sent them two books, but then I sent them, you know, the list of the database I had with all my customers, 70,000. Then I showed them I have five Facebook sites. I have Sweetwater's Adventures website, you know. And I have a marketing company, Integrated Digital Publishing is a marketing company. And I told them, I said, if you publish my book, I will help with the marketing. And so three days later, I get a contract for Simon, uh, from Stackpole for both my first book, second book, and third book, and they have the rights to my fourth book. You're really not going to like the fourth book. I'm probably going to have to go to another publisher because it's a remake of the Edward Abbey's Monkey Wrench Gang. I don't know if you, you ever heard of Edward Abbey. No. Anyway, he's a writer. He wrote 21 books. He's got half a dozen of them were turned into movies, Brave Cowboy, Fire on the Mountain, and things like that. But he was a, an anarchist, a passive anarchist, and he was the founder of her first, essentially. Even though he never became a member, his book, Monkey Ridge Gang, was the founding sort of stones of her first. 
And what he did is he had four protagonists in there. Uh, George Washington, Hey Duke III, Bonnie has a book, seldom seen Smith, he's a Mormon, married seven women, seldom seen by any of them. <laughs> you know, then you got Ed Avery's cabinet, and what they essentially did, they were upset that the government built all these hydroelectric dams on, on the uh, Colorado River. So what they wanted to do was they wanted to blow the canyon up, blow out the dam, let all the water flow, and bring the Grand Canyon back. And so he, he wrote, uh, The Monkey Ranch Gang and George Washington, Hey Duke, Lives Again, which was Actually, these are real people. I know them. They live out in Montana. And uh, so I started thinking, well, this is very similar to Okeechobee. I mean, we've dammed and diked Okeechobee to Kissimmee, the Everglades. We're starving the Everglades of water. We're doing all this stuff. So I've got my list of protagonists, my characters, and essentially, you know, they're getting together and coming up with a plot of how they're going to blow up the dams and dikes on Okeechobee and let the water flow. Well, the downside to that is if you blow out all the dams and dikes on Okeechobee, half of Palm Beach goes and, underwater. and half of Fort Lauderdale is going underwater, right. which is what it is where it should have been. Right. I mean, if it had been for the Army Corps of Engineers, all you got to do is mention dig and they'll do anything. Right. So um, I've got to come up with a scenario at the end where I've got to make a decision to want to push the button or whatever, I'm going to blow these dams and dikes up, <laughs> or am I going to figure out, you know, am I going to figure out a way to work with the state of Florida? And uh, haven't decided which way it's going to go yet. Let me, um, for two, two things. I want you to explain to the audience what Sweetwater Adventures is and that. But, um, and maybe <clears throat> I'm starting to put things together now that we're talking for a long time, which is one <laughs> of the beautiful things about this long form media. Is that how you were able to develop a relationship with all of these lodges and stuff around the world? Was through the digital mark or digital journalism that you were doing? This is going to really sound really goofy. Okay. We, my wife and <laughs> I, we, we, we graduated, we go to grad school, and so then we, my wife takes a job at Vertex Pharmaceuticals in Cambridge. And so I, I, I drew a map of the United States, and I, I used to put X's where I would not live. And Massachusetts was one of them. <laughs> so but she, she worked at the High Altitude Magnetic Field Lab at Florida State, and she was building the giant magnets and the superconductors used at CERN. And so... She would, <laughs> She finally got these offers. She kept getting higher and higher and higher offers. Then they flew her up there. Then they flew me up there. Then they found us a place to live. But they put everything I had, my canoes, my trucks, our cars, everything into a truck, sent it up there. We flew up there. And uh, it was an experience. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Anyway... All I did was bugger to death to come back every day, every day, every day. And so finally, after three and a half years, she finally capitulated and said, okay, we'll go back. Out of here. And so, but we can't, we wanted to go back to Florida State, but you can't hold a, a faculty position, a tenured faculty position at your alma mater without holding a tenured fa faculty position at another university. So it really doesn't make sense because you're going you're to spend four more years or five more years at a university getting tenure. Then they expect you to give up tenure to come back to your alma mater and start from the beginning. <laughs> so, University of South Alabama is like three and a half, four hours from Florida State. And so, my wife, because she sits on the board of directors of the, the High Altitude Magnetic Field Lab, she was able to take her grad students and undergrad students over to Tallahassee for weeks at a time and let them get some real life experience in, in, in uh, building all this stuff. And uh, it worked out kind of well. I was offered a job at uh, this is kind of, I don't even know if I should say this, but one of the deals of her going to University of South Alabama was if I got offered a job in the computer science department. 
And so I went over. She had already done her interview. She had already been hired. You know, this is weeks went by. But I flew down before we moved back. And I went in and inter interviewed with the, the computer science department and the, the dean of the computer science department. And half the kids in the room, half the faculty in the room were people I went to school with at Florida State. <laughs> you know, and so we, we had this interview. And it was, it was a pretty good interview. And so he goes, let's go have lunch. So I went in his office, and I'm sitting there. And he, he's looking at my Vita, and he goes, so what do you think about the Afghanistan war? And I'm going, what? He goes, well, what do you think? I see you were in the military. What do you think about everything that's going on in the Middle East? I said, well, obviously you wouldn't ask me that question if you're a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, does that matter? And I said, well, first of all, you shouldn't ask me any questions about this. It's against the law. And so one thing led to another, and he said, no, don't, don't take it so serious. I like you, yada, yada. I'm going, no, I, I, I don't think I like you. <laughs> and so one thing led to another, so I took my Vita, picked it up, and choo, 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 dropped it in the trash can and walked out. This is the goofy part. <laughs> I didn't have a job. So and all I was doing was trying to find a job and go fishing. So there was a, there was a tackle shop. And actually, when I was in school, I worked at Kevin's, Kevin's Tackle Shop in Tallahassee. But when I got to Mobile and I, got, you know, I left the university, I went over and I applied at this place called McCoy's. Great fly shop, clothes, everything. It's huge. Just top quality. So he wanted to hire me to rebuild his, uh, actually not rebuild, but build him a website and take all the photography of everything in there, then you gotta match up the prices and create the algorithms and stuff, all this stuff. It was a time-consuming job. But I had a great fly shop in there, and the counter where you go up to pay for the stuff had this giant chalkboard on the back. And so it was like maybe October, and so I got this wild hair on my butt, and I called, started calling lodges, and I called this lodge down in Costa Rica, Crocodile Bay. And so I put up there, we're running this trip, March, you know, such and such, such, Crocodile Bay, sign up or give it, give it as a Christmas present to one of your kids or husband. Approximately what year is this? I hope you've enjoyed the interview with Jim Stenson so far. The stories are so good and so intriguing, we decided to make this a two-part series. Please stay tuned next week for the next hour with Jim Stenson. And as always, run that dog.